This podcast contains adult themes and depictions of violence and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advice. I like to see firemen working. It's nice to see how they fall into the fire. Casetano Santos Godino was born the 30th, 31 of October of 1896 in Buenos Aires, Argentina. His parents were Fiore Godino and Lucia Rufo, a couple of immigrants that arrived from Italy in 1888. Depending on which source I check, it is says that he had either seven or nine siblings. They were all born in the Ameri American continent as well, except for his first brother that was born and died when he was very young in Italy. As many other thousands of immigrants that went to Argentina by the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century, they live in absolute poverty. The family live in a conventillo, a sort of collected urban settlement that was extremely common at that time. The thing is uh, immigrants were so poor that all they could afford was to rent a room and that's where all the families would live. They would all only have kitchen and dining room as common living areas. So it was literally dozens of people in just one room. And such was the case of the Godino family. Cayetano's childhood was far from happy. It is said that both of Cayetano's parents were alcoholics. But it was Fiore, the father, the one that would physically discipline him most of the time. But he wasn't the only one to physically abuse Cayetano. One of his brothers, Antonio, whom suffered from epilepsy, and when he became older, he became an alcoholic as well, would also regularly beat him. Cayetano nearly died from chronic diarrhea when he was just a baby, probably caused by the very poor sanitary conditions of the life in the conventillo. Fiore also had contracted syphilis at some point of his life, and it was never confirmed whether Cayetano also had it, but syphilis can be hereditary, and the late phases of the illness can also cause ne neurological damage. What can you tell me about what you study well. <laughs> about the immigration in Argentina, Chris? Right. Well, I think uh, the idea and the, the image that um, we really want to get is... If you think back to London and mm -hmm. uh, New York, Sydney, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of those famous industrial cities that really boomed during the industrial era. Metropolis. Metropolises. And they it. were very cosmopolitan. And um, Buenos Aires was the second biggest city at that stage on the... Um, Pacific Coast, mm -hmm. uh, just after New York, and you look at a lot of the uh, film uh, photographs and, and, and film footage from the era. It looks mm -hmm. absolutely magnificent, absolutely majestic city, mm -hmm. ultra modern, and like a lot of you know these ultra modern industrial cities, you have a truly massive underclass of. Um, disadvantaged people who live in abject poverty yep. with a lot of the, I guess you'd say, social services that were developed really only later 
in in you know in human industrial history. Before then, it was really benevolent organisations mm-hmm. and religious organisations that, and to a lesser extent, the state that took on the role of caring for and, in some cases, incarcerating many cases people who fell you know fell prey to um, the conditions and and diseases and and malnutrition that that living in abject poverty would bring about and i think this is this is the case with with the family you know immigrants came over with nothing from a slowly developing and i think fairly recently unified Italy, mm-hmm. yeah. which would have been going through some absolutely intense growth pains at this stage. You know, they came over looking for a new life and start something better, like all immigrants do when they move to, you know, particularly um, what's, what's considered at the time as the new world, you know, land mm-hmm. of opportunities. And, you know, what they find is rather than... I a poverty-stricken but traditional life in their home countries in Europe. They're forced to live in abject poverty and absolute squalid conditions in the, in their new their new homes. You we know. don't really know if they actually get a better life, most of them. I mean, it's funny because we're both immigrants. Yep, I'm Australian. And I'm Argentinian. Mm-hmm. And we're also grandchildren of immigrants. Mm-hmm. Me, I am grandchildren of Italian immigrants, although my family was from a different part. Uh, Gazetana family was from Cochenza. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family's friends were from the friends were from the north of Italy, from Albetone. Mm-hmm. So it's curious because um, we are thought like I told you many times before. Mm-hmm. Argentinian society it's quite racist because. We have so many of us that uh, have European blood, and we are often kind of taught to be proud because our grandparents came with nothing to America, and they, well, I was born into a middle-class family, and Mm -hmm. I have university studies, and I'm quite privileged. So we're taught to be proud of that, but actually, in that time, uh, Italian and Spanish, uh, from that the beginning of the 20th century, uh, were really frowned upon among the criollo, like the white society that was already in Argentina. They were really, they were really outsiders. They were really underdogs. They were, they had all these sort of uh, well racist stereotypes around them, so they weren't very beloved at that time. And I could really say that Cayetano, I like all the things that we're going to say, but he was pretty much made into that. But the media at that time really turned him into a social monster, so to speak. Yeah. From all that happened. So, I mean, there's a lot of things I guess we can unpick when it comes to Cajetano. Cajetano. Yeah, Cajetano. So, so there's a lot of things we can unpick the life of Cajetano. Um, Obviously, the grinding poverty that he was born into. and The use of violence, like discipline from a very early age. I am hip that 
maybe he was kind of desensitized at a certain level of the use of violence, really? Well, I mean, if you saw if you saw it at home, that's not to necessarily say that violence begets violence. In a lot of cases, it doesn't. But then again, in a lot of cases, when you are subjected to a lot of uh, physical physical abuse, discipline, you, discipline, quote unquote, mm, because that's not discipline; that's just plain abuse. Can go on to have behavioural effects in in development and combining with the possibility that he had syphilis in utero. Mm-hmm. Um, or malnutrition. And and not to mention in malnutrition. Um, certainly. It doesn't, if, if we're combining, uh, you know, if he's the sum of his part. Cazetano's experience with um, crime was very, very precocious. To, to a degree, I think some of it was written off as kids will be kids, boys will be boys. Very yeah. likely. Um, obviously, the outlook on on bullying and, and physical uh, roughhousing mm-hmm. has changed a lot, whereas parents will always be protective of their children. Mm, I think, not always. Not always, but particularly I think back in the early 20th century, physical roughhousing was... Provided it wasn't too extreme, was considered what children did, and uh, if if they uh, you know if they fell over, they're expected to pick themselves up, mm, wipe the tear from their eye, and, and dust themselves off and go continue playing. I mean, there's there's always nostalgia and that sort of you know. Wow. Older generation that looks back and says, "Oh, we were, you know, we were always a lot tougher." But you know, mm-hmm. there are uh, maybe Cadetano grew way too much tough. That well, I suspected. Th- I think that definitely would have been the case, especially if he, you know, he may have been desensitized to uh, physical violence because of what was perpe- you know, what was inflicted on him by mm-hmm. his father and and older siblings it's just a th- it's a theory but it you know it's one of those things you I, at the same time you can't probably can't rule out and uh, all goes together to form the melange melange, melange. Uh, I- yes sorry you may continue so that melange i i guess that this is time to unfold a little trigger warning this is a true crime podcast, so we're going to discuss a bit, a, a bit, a whole lot of physical violence, death, torture, and particularly violence against children. So be warned for that. So talking about Cadetano being a bit precautious. His uh, first encounter with the law, so to speak, was when he was just seven years old. On September the 28th of 1904, Cayetano took a little child, Miguel Le Paoli, who was only two years old, to a clearing. He beat him and he threw him into a ditch full of spikes. An Airbnb policeman caught Cachetano in the act and he took both children to the police station when they were after afterwards picked up by their mothers. Uh, Miguel survived the ordeal. A year later, 
Cayetano attack little Anna Neri, who was only 18 months old. The sequence, well, the sequence of all his attacks and crimes, it's are pretty much the same. He would take the child to a desolated area and hit her several times with a rock, but he was stopped by a cop before he could... Uh, well, he could get to kill her, pretty much. Hmm. And now this is a very interesting fact because um, I found several sources mm-hmm. that actually put a veil of doubt whether this was actually his crime or he committed it. This is like a very, it's a very, it's a very famous mm-hmm. uh, case in the Argentinian history, but we don't have a, like really getting the source to all this material is very complicated because he kind of became of a urban myth, some sort of a boogeyman. Um, the crime at that time was so exceptional that um, it went through the media well, in very subjective or sensationalist uh, point of view. Mm-hmm. So, well, in 1906, um, Cazetano confessed that he murdered his first victim. That would be when he was nine years old. Maria Rosa Fase was a three-year-old girl that Cayetano attempted to kill by strangulation because it seems like he couldn't get to kill her that way. He claimed that he buried her alive in a desolated alley. The thing is, uh, the body of the girl was uh, never found because this is a crime that he confessed uh, many years after and when the police went to the place where he claimed he hid the body, there was a two-story building uh, that it was built in that place. And her family had moved back to Italy. What it was found was a missing child report of that year. Precisely uh, a report of a missing three-year-old girl that was mm. called Maria Rosafache. So... If this wasn't his first crime, we have an interesting coincidence. Or maybe he was claiming something that he didn't do for whatever reason. Mm. We've, we've heard about criminals claiming crimes that they didn't do, even serial killers. That's true, though mm-hmm. he doesn't seem to have uh, big noted himself too much. He never seemed to showboat his his criminal hmm. um, his criminal record or his uh, his his crimes what he'd done he'd never sought to torment the families aside from committing the actual murders themselves mm-hmm. he he never sent body parts back or you know <laughs> he, he he often hid uh, the bodies of the oh, yeah, of the children tried. who he who he Mm-hmm. had beaten or, you know, murdered. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he clearly didn't want them found, at least straight away. He was trying to conceal his crime so that, mm-hmm. you know, at the very least, he wouldn't get caught as quickly, if not at all. Um, 
by obscuring the bodies and, you know, hopefully not putting any attention onto himself. However, the fact that he was known to local police who... And the neighbours. And the neighbours to to have been a, you know, repeatedly mm-hmm. um, somewhat of a local terror... Um, uh, you know, the fact that he's he's been caught strangling and, you know, beating children half to death with rocks and then dumping their bodies in, you know... Ditches. <laughs> ditches full of briars and thorns would have sort of, you know... I would have thought it would have set off some alarm bells straight off. But, yeah. There were so many people living in Buenos Aires. That's true. And I guess... Yeah, I remember you know, it was like a... Nine or twelve people, family that live in one single room, and it was just one room mm. in a huge settlement. Yeah. So, uh, really, how how could people keep an eye on children? After all, how how how, how hard it yeah. could have been. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of the time as well, parents were out, you know, working themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know working themselves to the bone to provide, you know, the basic necessities for themselves and their families, keep a roof over their heads and food in their tummies, that they did have to rely on, you know, the the local neighbours, you know, the local neighbourhood, all the nonnas to (laughs) keep keep an eye on the kids just generally and the kids would sort themselves out. I believe at that time they they all had access to free schooling, so um, mm-hmm. uh, that is free primary school at least. Yeah, so you know, so at least in theory, for uh, children of young age, the the potential at least, if they didn't decide to quit and it uh, either not go to school or go, you know, find a job if they mm-hmm. could, if they had one uh, available to them. Um, Otherwise, school, you know, school was an option and, um, you know, that definitely would have um, aided Argentina's, you know, uh, extreme rise, you know, ir- uh, rise in, in success, which, you know, went up until the 1930s. Pretty um, much. Yeah. So, um, but um, Cajetano, um, I believe started started schooling uh, mm-hmm. or was at least pushed into schooling by his parents however had zero interest and motivation in his education he got kicked out one after another time after another time according to some sources he was kicked out from at least six different schools and we're talking about primary this is um it really I mean, child killers are something very upsetting. It's something that just infuriates the common, like even criminals. Like, you know, criminals that are violent against children are the worst kind, even in jail. Mm. But uh, child killers uh, are simply something that wasn't in the minds of the people. You really wouldn't expect that your eight-year-old neighborhood would try to attack your toddlers no that's 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 right and the fact that a someone you know a person so young could harbor such 
well, I don't, I don't know if malice is the right word. Were they violence, crimes of, you know, crimes of passion, or was it? Mm, I wouldn't use that concept. No, that's, that's the thing. They, they, from you know, from a lot of the reports, he was just mean and enjoyed inflicting pain. Pain, but it, can I talk about the barrel? It was seemed fairly dispassionate. All right, go ahead. Kind of, kind of dispassionate. That's. It's very hard to classify him. True. So, whether or not he actually killed his first victim in 1906, that was the year that he was first uh, in prison. It seems like um, that same year, Fiore, Cazetano's father, found a dead bird in one of his shoes. And upon some inspection, he found a cardboard box full of dead birds under his bed or more like their beds because again they will live all together and this is when he discovers that um, one of Cajetano's first hobbies was uh, killing little animals it seems like he had some particular interest in poking birds eyes so upon Discovering that, and it seems like he would also masturbate very frequently or compulsively. Which is actually what initially got his parents to turn him in to the police. Exactly. Um, as masturbation was considered to be a, a moral crime... Uh, or crime against morality, and but that's not what it says in the in the first police report because uh, I found it actually. That's you see, that's the problem with that. That's the issue with the sources. So I have the same source. Like mm-hmm. it seems like um, compuls- compulsory compulsory masturbation was uh, one of his other hobbies. But most of that, uh, he was taken to the police, and according to the first report. His uh, father would um, witness, or he would testify, that he was just mean and violent. That he would attack his neighbors, that he would insult them, through or throw rocks at them, and he couldn't be um, disciplined. That's pretty much what it says. It's like he would be violent, but he couldn't be disciplined. And we already know at this point what discipline meant for Fiore. So, mm. more physical punishment. That's uh, that's funny how some sort of violence, it is legitimate mm. at some points of society or some ages and some other types of violence isn't. Mm. So, only being only nine years and five months old, Casotano spent his first two months imprisoned in Juvie. Mm. After being released, he attacked two more children. He attempted to drown uh, a two-year-old boy, Severino González Caló, and he burned the eyelids of a 22-month-old baby that was named Julio Bote with a a cigarette. In both cases, as it happens almost every single time with him, he was caught and stopped by any adult. Mm. Actually, in um, when he tried to drown uh, little Severino, 
he actually made up this uh, fantastic story about that he um, he wasn't uh, drowning the child, he was trying to save him, and that a lady wearing all black was the one that tried to kill the child. So he was actually a saver. Hmm. So there I said that there is a bit of deceitfulness in his way of, of acting. So, yeah, he really... There I said that he really knew that he wasn't doing something that most people would think was right. Do you think he came up with that um, uh, description, that that uh, alibi, um, mm-hmm. alibi. Uh, do you think he came up with that uh, excuse the, to before or after he was caught? Or did, did it say whether he was, uh, he came up with it before or after? Was it something that he did and then upon getting caught, Made it up. Made it um, up to try and... Uh, oh, that he was already planning this uh, story about the lady in black. Yeah, and had his convenient excuse for the next time that he uh, yeah, he was pulled up. That is something that uh, I couldn't find in any of the sources. Mm. Might as well be either of them, but what I get of this particular episode uh, is that uh, he would lie mm. to get to get free and in a different occasion he also um no this would be okay i'm jumping in a few years but he would mm-hmm. also made up another story about being caught uh, tying up a child like trying to strangle him and he would say that he was trying to save it he was untangling mm. the child mm. so yeah deceitfulness it is something that is part of his behavior yeah so two years after his first detention that is, in 1906, Fiore takes Cayetano once again to the police. But in this new occasion, he's uh, sent to a youth detention center mm. that was called the Colonia de Menores of Marcos Paz. So, Colonia means colony, Menores means minor. So, it's very much a colony of minors. Mm-hmm. I did some research, and it's actually interesting yeah. Because this um, this youth this juvie this yeah. juvenile detention center was the first of of the time there was it was the first of its class um, uh-huh. that it was created uh, in 1905 and it was supposed to be an institute in which mm. through the teaching of trades and agricultural work because it was uh, a former farm yeah uh, that. Uh, the idea of uh, how can I say it? yeah that uh, these um, children or orphans or minors could actually be reformed mm-hmm. quote unquote through uh, the teaching of trades and hard work mm. pretty much I mean it, the the uh, the uh, reformatory school. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I guess institutions were quite popular at that time. Um, it seems. Um, I mean, particularly in the United Kingdom and in the United States, um, one of the more famous uh, reformatories, youth reformatories, was Borstal School, uh, prison for children. Um, um, which 
has had a lot of uh, famous, uh, should we say, criminals from um, Britain's history uh, have their, you know, do their time there. Uh And um, it's also quite renowned for its uh, brutal treatment and and, and abuse that was uh, done onto the... uh, the young folk who were who were sent there to be reformed. Um, it's kind of universal, so to speak. Like mm. I don't think that people have a positive concept of reformati- reformatory institutions, or pretty much. In, no, I guess that if, if I I ask you actually mm. uh, a few days ago, what sort of um, fame or opinion have people about reformatories, but. Uh, I think largely uh, I think in at Australia, the time, I mean. in Australia, I think um, at the time a lot of um, people with good intentions or at least they thought they had good intentions were uh, mm-hmm. were happy to uh, go ahead with the development of um, reformatories and unfortunately, the reality when you put a lot of children in a com- enclosed confined space with carers and minders who actually a lot of them as it turned out in australia were uh notorious child abusers um it's just it's never going to turn out good and i think in uh yeah because there were all sorts of of children here there were also at some point also children that would end up there because they were homeless or that they came from very poor families and mm-hmm. they were others that already have a delinquent, quote-unquote, uh, life experience. Mm. And Gayetano, that, well, he seemed like he his extremely violent tendencies started since a very young age. Yeah. So when I was, um, when I was an adolescent, my dad gave me this novel that mm. is Las Tumbas that is written by an Argentinian author, Enrique mm-hmm. Medina. And it's about the story of an eight or nine-year-old child that is left at a juvie, at mm-hmm. this uh, juvenile detention center, by his own mother because uh, their family is so poor, is a single mother, that uh, she cannot take care of it. It's like, um, it was like some sort of childcare. Yeah. Not because people felt it like childcare, because really... They just couldn't take care of the children, so they would might as well left it at Juby. Mm-hmm. So this novel is from the 70s, mm-hmm. and it was actually prohibited in the 70s during the, uh, during the dictature. Yeah. Because uh, I never and finished this novel because there is just so much physical and sexual abuse between, you know, the own children that are in the institution and the people that are the staff that um, I couldn't make it. Yeah. Really, my my dad's good intention was to for me to know uh, how was the reality of those states' institutions. Mm-hmm. That's why it was prohibited because uh, the, um, the military dictature didn't want people to know that uh, those places that were meant to reform children were actually places where they would be systematically abused. abused. Yeah. Yeah. 
So he spent um, three years in juvenile in La Colonia Marcos Paz. And we don't have many details yeah. of how he went through there. We only know that he learned to read and write a little bit. And it was in 1911, presumably by his own family petition, yeah. that he was set free again, which is uh, really makes me think what was the system because they would take him to police and then they would ask again for him to be released. So, uh, Well, I mean, the, I guess we don't know what the actual... Um, How would it really work? Yeah, well, did, I mean, did they want him as an extra worker for the family to bring... You know, he was becoming old enough to... Mm-hmm. Hold down a job and contribute to the um, to the family's upkeep, or did they just genuinely miss their son? Where they, I'm not sure, did they if they visited him often, or uh, or whether they were genuinely missed him and you know just wanted to have the family member back, um, or whether you know the community, mm-hmm. you know, was starting to ask questions and. Uh, you know, it was a, a you know a point of familial pride, or you know, there is um I was checking out a documentary of a famous uh, journalist of Argentina. That's not my favorite because he's kind of a, a right wing conservatory tendencies, but um, he had a lot of information in his documentary, mm. and it seems like Casetano um, uh, was. Uh, uh, he was. He had an interview with the staff during his time in Juby, and he actually uh, said that the first time he was ever happy there was uh, one Christmas, in which he was let go of the colony uh, of the colonia to see his family, mm-hmm. and that, that was his uh, the only time he was happy in his life so far. So, yeah, there might be a chance that in the way that they knew how to love people, that they might actually uh, miss him because after he was set loose, uh, he came, he went back to live with his family, but he could never hold a job after that, like Mm. even doing labor, working uh, in farms, taking care of animals. He, well... Was, I guess that. Yeah, was well. From what I read, he was just an unsuitable worker, and he was also drunk when he was set loose. So he was an early adolescent, fifteen year old, and he already took the habit of drinking. Well, the same as his whole family. Mm. To be, to be realistic. Yeah, and also access to alcohol. Yeah, wasn't as well monitored. Then, as it is today, if if at all, we could. I'm sure there were laws, but uh, prohibiting minors drinking. But whether they are actually adhered to at all, or you know, a minor was you know, the term was uh, a little bit uh, different than it is today. I think you know, responsibility was foisted on people a lot earlier. Um, we don't know if his own dad gave him alcohol. It is said um, on worse source, I had um, that when he was 12 or 13, he started to suffer from migraines. 
and on a, um, on a different source that is from a famous criminologist of Argentina that is quite a, quite an authority, Oswaldo Raffo. It is says that he would fake having seizures because his older brother had seizures and that he would fake them. So we don't know if he was actually suffering from migraines, so maybe he would take alcohol for that or that he was given alcohol or that he would fake them to get out of his way. Mm -hmm. So there's a good chance that maybe he's could drink alcohol in his whole house, his mm. own house. Yeah. Well, it's something obviously that he grew up with, which you know would have normal, you know, completely normalized it. Um, sure thing. And I think you know, I think it was quite widespread the use of alcohol for as an antidepressant to mm -hmm. you know temporarily escape from the you know the daily grind, yeah, as it still is today, and um, yeah. He just may have started using it as as you know, for those. He may have started using it for that purpose, coping at, at, at an earlier age than uh, a lot of people do nowadays. Although that's not to say they don't. Well, in general, in this middle class privileged society that some of us grew up, unfortunately, I'm not complaining about that right now. Mm. So, 1912 is the year his crime spree takes place. On January, he set fire to a warehouse on Corrientes Street. And when he was arrested, he told to the cops the following, quote, I like to see firemen working. It's nice to see how they fall into the fire. End of quote. So we're adding arson to... His many hobbies, including killing little animals. Mm -hmm. So any true crime or psychology mm -hmm. fanatic or aficionado or professional is probably going to find this very familiar because mm -hmm. those are two of the elements of the very famous McDonald trial. Mm -hmm. Triad. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it. That's it. Um. On January, as well, the body of a 13-year-old Arturo Laurora was found on a house that was for rent. He was half-naked, naked from the waist down, and he had been strangled to death with a string. On March the 7th, Cazetano set fire to the dress of a girl, five-year-old girl, Reina Bonita Vainikov, that seems like he came from a Russian family. Mm -hmm. And that she agonized for 16 days before she died in a hospital. Mm. During November, Cadetano attacked three children, but they all managed to survive. He attempted to strangle Roberto Russo, that was two years old, in a barn. But he was caught by a laborer and he's taken to the police but he was released since the police didn't have many proof that um, he was uh, intentionally trying to kill the child. This is the case in which he lied. I mean, he said that he wasn't strangling the child, that he was trying to untangle him and that he was trying to save him. Mm -hmm. um, second 
uh, attempted victim uh, was Carmen Gitone, a three-year-old child, and then uh, Catalina Nawaler, also three-year-old child that he tried to uh, take to an alley. Uh, he bought some candies. He tried to give them to the child to get her to follow him, but she didn't. She tried to run away, and that's when he had a fist of um, of rage and hit her. Was He was caught again by a neighbor, and mm. he was set loose once again. He seems to... Well, he he really focuses on young children. Um, I mean, again, there's... So there's a lot to be unraveled there, um, provided, you know, just trying to understand his mental state. Um, is, is he choosing young children because they are convenient and, un, you know, unable to communicate their... Unable to fight. Unable to fight. Are they just an easy... Um, target, target, also. and uh, you know, a def- an effectively defenseless target, uh, or you know, is is has he got a, a, a another form of you know logic at work that you know, they make unreliable witnesses because they are unable to communicate? Um, and there were lots of, after all, people didn't have the same methods of preventing uh, pregnancies, so I reckon he had. Plenty of yeah. prey for him, and that's true. A lot of a lot of young children left barely supervised, wandering the well, you know, around the neighbourhood, and it, you know, again, neighbourhoods were fairly convivial places at Star, and you know, everyone knew everyone, and it wouldn't be unusual for you to stop talk to someone who you knew from the street, and yeah, if able to offer them candy, there was someone you could you know, in theory, trust because they were local and, you know, mm-hmm. someone local wouldn't, would never hurt you. So. And he looked younger than his age. That's true. He was incredibly short for his age. And, a meter and a half. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. Shorter than me. And yeah. he was 16 at that time. So he didn't have the body of an adolescent. And some people may argue if given the chance to look at a picture of him that he would look quote-unquote, and I, I don't mean to be offensive but saying this, but some people would say that he looked retarded mm. or like an idiot, which is a medical term of that time for uh, mentally challenged people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that maybe that's how he got his way with hanging around with children. Like, people might seem like, oh, that idiot child that it's an adolescent but doesn't behave like an adolescent. Mm. So, we got to his last victim, his better or well-known victim, and some may say that his only true victim. That's a, an interesting point that I never thought about. But yeah. So, we have Gesualdo uh, Giordano. Uh, in some newspapers of that time, It is uh, his name is spelled as uh, Gerardo. Because it seems like Gerardo is more Spanish-like and not so Italian-like. But well, uh, Gesualdo uh, was a three-year-old child that was actually neighbor 
with the family of Cayetano. He found Gesaldo in his house sidewalk and he told him that he would bought him some candy if he followed him. So Cayetano take, took the child to a shop. They bought some candy from another younger and that it's when he finally managed to get him to a to an open alley. He tried to strangle him with a rope, but uh, it seems like he failed to kill him. Although uh, in the autopsy it is uh, it's written that he gave thirteen rounds, like you know, punches. Mm, no, like he took the the rope and give it thirteen. Oh, it wrapped around thirteen around, times. Round, yeah. Yeah. In the neck of the child. So, um, after the strangulation, he would later claim that he felt thirsty. He went out of the alley to look for another instrument to kill the child. And Cazetano found himself uh, with the father of Gesualdo. The father asked him if he had seen the child. And he said no, that he hadn't seen him. And he actually suggested the dad, the father, to go to the police to ask uh, for his child. This is when he picked a nail, a three-inch nail. He re-entered the house and he hammered the nail into the side of Giordano's skull with a rock. And he hid the corpse around some... Uh, it was a plate, a plate of zinc... And, yeah, some uh, debris, exactly. Some debris in the, uh, the, in the house. And, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, it was after he killed him that he claimed that he felt thirsty, so he went to a kiosk to get a, to buy a soda or some juice. I'm not sure what was uh, being sold at that time. Mm. And it was minutes later when uh, Jesualdo's pa- uh, dad uh, got into the, the alley, the abandoned house, and found the body. It's very sad because it seems like he actually took the child because he didn't realize or he was in denial and he couldn't see that he was dead. So the dad might actually, no, he actually contaminated quite uh, the crime scene. Mm. Oh, well. Initially, the police arrest Jesualdo's parents from the crime. And while the little boy was on his wake... Cazetano actually went to see the corpse, and this is where uh, he was pointed to the police, like the the actual uh, the actual uh, murderer of him. The neighbors that saw Cazetano witness that he touched the body of the child, to be more precise, like he held the head of the child, and that he started to cry. So, less than a day later of uh, of the crime, at 5.30 a.m. on December the 4th of 1912, Cazetano was arrested by the police. When he was asked why he had been to his victim's own wake, he said that he wanted to see if he still had the nail in his head. And... Um, he was actually taken by the police. This this was like a, a very 
I, I really would say like I don't know what sort of methods the police had at that time but uh, he was taken to see the body at the morgue mm. and according to Osvaldo Raffo this uh, criminologist this Argentine criminologist uh, it is said that he had an erection when he saw the body of the child I'm, I think that this method was generally considered like an observational technique in that the police would be watching the suspect behavior behavior around the around the the corpse of the victim to see if they you know would break down and and confess or whether they'd act uncomfortably or um they have an erection or have an erection in this case um you know whether you know that was uh, regular, or you know, or in this case, very irregular to the point <laughs> where it was, you know, it was noticed and and deemed to be some sort of a a, a giveaway. Um, exactly. And uh, yeah, to the point where it's it's noted down in, in records. So. Yeah. And that's when he was uh, stripped naked, and he was um, well the. Police did a thoroughly. How would you say it? Like, excuse my accent. Mugshots. Mug, not his mugshot, but he was inspectioned like a yeah, whole. Oh, he had physical inspection. physical inspection. And it was found that he had uh, twenty seven wounds, like scars, and some sources would say that they were all around his body, and some other sources would say that they were on his head. So yeah. 27 blows to his head, mm. uh, presumably by his father or mother or older brother of all of them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, brain injury. We could add that to the serial killer blueprint. Mm. We know about many cases that they've suffered some sort of a brain injury that can actually affect the ability that humans have of having empathy or mm. compassion. So mm. we could add that to his profile. Mm. And so he pretty much uh, confessed at that time. I was checking the old newspapers of the of the area and pretty much the following day of being published the crime, the, the, the discovery of the body of Gesualdo, that, that's the picture that you can see. Mm-hmm. It was the same, the, yeah, the following day that he was arrested and it went straight to the news because he seemed to confess to all of his other crimes. Mm-hmm. He, well, at that time, having only a confession was uh, good enough yep. to put someone in jail, which is, uh, we know nowadays that fakes or mm. gores... False confessions and uh, are something fame seekers. Yep. ...are more common that we would like to have. But um, the police also have some uh, physical evidence. Uh, Cayetano had blood on his clothes, mm-hmm. on his shoes. And he would use a string as a belt. Which was fairly common. Yeah. Back in, uh, you know, before, you know, the stripped leather belt, which we're familiar with now, was, was you know, put into use. But, um, yeah. Very low resource people. But the thing is, like, uh, the string that was attached to the neck of uh, the little Gesualdo 
was burned in one of his uh, endings. And Cayetano's belt, quote-unquote, was also burned. And that he had human blood. A DNA exams didn't exist at that time, of course, but it was proven that it was human blood, what he had on his clothes. And besides, in one of his pockets, it was found a scrap of a news of the discovery of the body of the little boy. It was, to be more precise, a scrap of the photo of the crime scene. So yeah, that's quite a telltale for mm -hmm. someone that barely knew how to read. He was also recognized by a witness, a girl named Maria Perlero, that was working in the small store where Cayetano bought the candy with uh, Gesualdo. So she would actually see the both of them. Mm. And also uh, the boy's father would recognize him. But uh, we also have to say that pretty much at this point, uh, everybody knew him. Mm. Uh, everybody knew about his behavior. Like... Um, Yeah. I mean, at that stage, with so much, well, conjectural evidence, and but also mm -hmm. witness statements providing, you know, um, sightings with the with the victim. So th things, uh, the, the judicial system as it was, or the... the judicial system, the uh, criminal system as it was, uh, police, the policing system as it was, uh, clearly that was enough to, uh, you know, put him, put him at the scene of the crime with a, with a witness. Um, yeah. What can we well, say? It's, it's really hard to say because um, I wouldn't doubt that the police would try to do some shady stuff in this case and the things like I'm getting back to what I was telling about uh, at the beginning about the condition of immigrants like common people like they were the lowest class and they would have all these negative stereotypes about them well the Italians well his father was a drunk so pretty much for all the criollos the high society of, of Spanish that the Spanish descendant that had been living for decades in Argentina. All Spanish and Italians were drunk and lazy. So there is a bit of that. Like, I don't... After doing this research, I'm starting to doubt about the, whether he was guilty of... He was found guilty of four charges of murder. Seven attempted murders and, and seven counts of arson. Yeah. Why not? No, I was I was just going to go straight through uh, the, the trial and the diagnosis. But this, but this mm -hmm. I, I think um, the outcome of the trial and um, the, the judgment that was brought against him wasn't influenced by the sensational nature of you know, high society's expectations of, of recent migrants and, and you know, of, of the upper socioeconomic class and their opinion and, and what was in the papers uh, of, of the, uh, the migrant 
lower socioeconomic class. It, it seemed like a fairly well reasoned and rationed, rationalized and impassionate judgment, um, all things considered, especially for the absolutely horrific nature of the crimes and you know what what he was accused of um i could have in a lot of other cases seen his the outcome of of yeah, his his judgment and and verdict uh, not verdict i could see the outcome uh of of his sentencing to to have been a lot more severe for for you know it's the upsetting and sensitive nature of, of what of the crimes he'd committed. So do go on. Tell, tell us. So do go on. <laughs> so do go on. I lost, I lost it. So um, the, diagno- uh, the judgment, and then I can go to the diagnosis and play to be an armchair uh, psychoanalyst or psychologist. Yeah. Well, that's not the intention because neither of us are criminal. Are criminal. No, we're not. We're well, not professionals. I'm Australian, so. <laughs> I'm Argentinian and I'm half Italian, so I'm resentful and, and wrong, clearly. <laughs> so <laughs> I got to say it. So, yeah. The, um, the judgment. Uh, so he would confess uh, after found, um, I mean, after he was pointed by the neighbors and several witnesses as the responsible of the death of Gesualdo, he confessed to other three crimes. And he was initially found innocent by reason of insanity. And then the judge and the judge's initial uh, resolution was that he had to be indefinitely in an institution. So he was sent to the Hospicio de las Mercedes. As you can imagine, mm-hmm. this place was an hospice. So it was pretty much a religious-related institute that wasn't neither a mental institution or a hospital, but it worked like halfway through for a place where the mentally ill and the terminally ill or disabled were kept. And while he was in the hospice, Cayetano attacked three other patients. He tried to strangulate Thomas Hull, who was a paralytic, and also tried to kill Felipe Serminara, who was his roommate and he was bedridden. He would also try to poison Juan Montes, another patient, by dissolving matches on his milk, and he also tried to escape. So after this, there was an appeal of uh, yeah his uh, initial uh, his initial trial, and he was found guilty. He was uh, sent to jail on November the twentieth in Las Heras. Las Heras is a small um, town near the capital Buenos Aires where he would spend 10 years. Then he was transferred to the Ushuaia Penitentiary, or the jail at the end of the world, because in case you don't know where Ushuaia is, it's uh, the last uh, province of Argentina that is uh, it's the nearest to Antarctica, so it's uh, pretty much a very ruthless and cold place. It was literally the worst place where you could be sent. And he would die there in 1942, when he was age 
48. According to the to the autopsy that he was done, he died of um, stomach ulcera. He had many um, he had many health issues. But it's also said, but this is like almost like a legend that it was very likely that he was um, that his death was also a consequence of some beatings that he took. Some pretty severe beatings from from some of the uh, his fellow records and and mm-hmm. stories from guards that rotated back to the world and some of the inmates who. I mean, this historical beating that he took was actually 10, uh, 11 years before he died. It seems like, again, different sources, you have different details, but it seems like he either killed one or two of the prison's uh, pets. They were cats, according to one source, um according to uh, a newspaper article that I found of that time, of 1933, he threw these cats to the fire that they were lodges. And according to a different, um, to a different source, a different um, journalist, he actually snapped the cat's spine or that he set them or it on fire. And that's when he took a very severe beating that he had to be 20 days bedridden. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he wasn't very well liked pretty much. Uh, it is also said that he was a snitch. Mm-hmm. So uh, a child killer, maybe a child molester and a snitch. And not to mention being... Essentially, uh, killing the pets, or killing the pets, <laughs> killing the the, you know, really the one source of joy and comfort that a lot of the inmates would, uh, you know, be allowed to show some comfort and uh, an affection, an affection to, and probably the yeah the one source of joy that a lot of these like six up to six hundred hardened inmates. Uh, you know, kept as uh, was saw as saw as their mascot. So um, it's you know little wonder that he did cop a hiding. As, mm-hmm. uh, it's little wonder that he did cop the beating that he did, which you know supposedly left him near death when he was found by guards. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, I guess depending on the medical attention he received, um, he may have been you know in a. Uh, somewhat injured, weakened state for the rest of his days and that, you know, he did contract, you know, through his weakened immune system. Um, and the cold. And, well, not to mention the absolutely biting cold. Um, and that that's what did him in in the end, um, to mention, yeah. What did the media say about him? Like, um, I thought for a long time that he was considered the first serial killer in Argentinian history. Uh, he's not the first serial killer, but he's the first serial killer of his characteristics, according to criminology. Um, it's like uh, what you read in the media. I'm, I'm looking at an, an old interview done in the newspaper Caras y Caretas, which was and still is very famous. Um, an article 
where he is um, his name like a, a monstrous criminal and the first sentence says that it is not possible to consider him as a human being and it's it wasn't not only the newspaper but the police at that time that um, they they were part or they would um, how can I say be inspired in the Italian school of criminology the mm. Lombrosian the um, the uh, the uh, Argentinian policing the Argentinian police establishment followed subscribed to the school the Italian school of um, Lombroso uh, Cesare Cesare Lombroso uh, so try it. Italian school of positivist criminology that's mm. what I wanted to say that cool. it's roughly speaking like a very racist um, yeah uh, very racist or very very unscientific <laughs> method of analyzing criminals what would uh, what did Cecare Lombroso do Chris well he largely was a criminal anthropologist of the day mm -hmm. who believed that um, uh, people would commit crimes due to the uh, the characteristics of their human nature which um, had its roots in their uh, well, their their social class, um, but also you know this this would feed back into uh, the the classes' origins, um, whether they were from a particular social group or you know, a particular uh, group of uh, immigrants, or uh, you know, essentially, um, you know. Uh, social Darwinism, uh, yeah, as you said, was fairly, you know, it was fairly rooted in in racism and and mm -hmm. you know, um, colonial exceptionalism um, of the ruling classes, and he would pretty much Cecare Lombroso made um, he would among many other things, but uh, but he's better or best known for is that he would analyze the size and shapes and measures of the heads and, and bodies. The so phrenology. The phrenology. Yeah. And not to mention other abnormal, mm -hmm. you know, quote-unquote abnormal physical traits, which... Um, they could be identified as physical or congenital defects that would actually link the criminal as a savage or they would have uh, stigmas. That's the word that we would use in Spanish. Like you, to be more precise, mm. what happened with Cayetano? Cayetano is better known in Argentina uh, for his nickname, El Petiso Orejudo, which means Petiso. It's like a midget. Like it is an, an, an offensive nickname. I'm aware of that. 
and Orejudo, it's a big ear because he was, again, very short, extremely short for his age, and he would have very big ears. So even in the newspapers of the era, the very early um, news that I could found of his crime, uh, all this, the Lombrosian theory was actually being used by the journalists. He was, again, I said, I... I'm pretty much sure that he murdered at least one victim. He swears one that it's he has the most amount of evidence against him. But uh, the media was turning him to a born criminal, that he was called like that. And even some psychiatrists would actually give that, um, that the Nazis, that he was a born criminal... Uh, degenerate and that he was absolutely beyond any sort of um, rehabilitation exactly so as you know the, uh, the born criminal it's a concept of Lombroso actually it's mm. like that person that has inherited uh, criminality in themselves so not because he might have been exposed to violence since he was a very young, or he might have, or he probably have some, um, he went through malnourished them, and it's very likely that that rain never, never got what a rains need to perfectly function. So, Not yeah. to mention the inherited syphilis. syphilis. But it was never proved whether he had syphilis, you know? That that is true. That is true. That is true. So how did the, uh, the, uh, psychological fraternity of Argentina uh, decide to uh, categorize Cajetano. Well, like I said, the first judge would uh, would uh, deem him uh, non-guilty for insanity. Mm. And they are he he was uh, interviewed several different times by different doctors mm. among all those time whether he was in the hospicio that was like dust pseudo mental institute when he was first and then when he was uh, already in jail mm -hmm. so according to the negri lucero negri and lucero is the name of the doctors that uh, did the interview to him mm -hmm. according to this first uh, essay he is uh, he's considered an alienated insane or crazy that he's uh, degenerate and that he suffers from moral insanity, that he's irresponsible and he's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. So this concept, moral insanity, is very interesting because we could actually associate it nowadays, which watch we could call them antisocial personality mm -hmm. disorder. That is a cluster B. I mean, uh, and social morality is very subjective, yeah, depending is, so. on what culture you're from and how the law is interpreted in any particular area or or even time period. But for this particular time, um, this, this sense of antisocial behaviour, mm -hmm. um, even as extreme as it is... Um, could be justified, or not justified, but categorized in a fairly, what would seem a catch-all term, but one that 
I think, you know, was perhaps one of the, the forebearers of, you know, the modern uh, interpretation, which, you know, we going from you know morality to you know um, which sort of implies the uh, the we, code of mm-hmm. you know the the, the code of um, you know, the societal code of the time to you know literally the current societal behavior um, behavioral codes and criminologists at that time wouldn't know whether to think uh, because he had the appearance of a quote unquote again idiot or retard but through the story we can see that he would actually try to hide his crimes he would lie and at some point and this is an interview that it's done when he's in the Hospicio de las Mercedes this interview he was asked um, whether he had remorse for his crime and he claimed that he wouldn't, he wouldn't understood what they meant with remorse. He was asked if he knew what remorse is, and he said that he didn't. He's asked if he feels sadness or shame for the death of uh, the boys Giordano, Laurora, and the girl uh, Reina Bonita Vainikov, which are three of his victims or claim victims. And he claimed no. He's asked if he thought he had the right to kill children. And this is very curious because he says, quote, I am not the only one. Other people do it too. Close quote. He's asked why he would kill children. He would say that he would enjoy it. He's asked if he thinks that he would be punished from, for his crime, crimes. And he says that uh, he heard that he would be given 20 years in jail. And if he wouldn't, he weren't a minor. Because, again, he was 16 at this time. Uh, he would get shot in the head. Because uh, that penalty existed in Argentina. And it was by firing squad. Um, well, in this interview, he's also asked if he had the chance he would kill more children. And he says yes. And that he would try to hide his crimes. And he's also asked whether he's a happy or an unhappy child. And he says, happy. There's also an interview, the Diario La Nación. An interview that he is, um, it's done to him like a few days after he gets arrested. Where he's asked why he would kill children. And um, it says that uh, he claims that he would have fights with his family and he would get very angry like he would have fits of rage so he would go out and let go of his anger and resentment on little children so yeah we have all these elements like he would kill because he was angry and he needed to let that anger go he would kill because he enjoyed that and he would kill but he's not the only one that kills other people do it too so why is it so such a bad thing if he does it mm-hmm. so yeah criminally insane um damn this is such a dark case well you can see why is it so famous and i'm just looking at a comic book that a friend of mine nicolas brondo 
Deed of Cayetano. Yeah, Nicolas is a comic book artist of Argentina that he gave me uh, for free a copy of of his comic. So if you're listening to this, Nico, thank you so much. <laughs> it's really well done. So that's the case of Cayetano. Mm-hmm. Santos Godino, better known as El Petiso Orejudo or The Big Ear Midget. Argentina's first and youngest. Youngest. Youngest serial youngest killer. Serial killer and one of the most notorious. That is, uh, yeah, his his title, his honor band. Honorific. Honorific or infamous um, title is being the youngest serial killer. But there was actually a serial killer uh, before him. The first serial killer of Argentina was uh, Domingo Cayetano Grossi. So he shared a name with Cayetano Santos Godino. Uh, Domingo Cayetano Grossi was an Italian immigrant as well. Uh, He lived in Buenos Aires as well. And he was um, accused and executed uh, on in the 1900s, like at the beginning of the century. Uh, what was Domingo Cayetano crime? You- well, he was uh, accused and convicted of murdering five newborn children that he had fathered with his own stepdaughters. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. He is... Uh, he is actually Argentina's first serial killer, but... Something about children. But yeah, but still it was an adult. It wasn't a child mm. killing children. And Cazetano was that a, yep. a child murderer. That was a child himself. Because can we say that a 16-year-old is um, an adult? No. Or a 7-year-old, if we believe his story about his first murder, mm. the murdering of Maria Rosa Fase, that was... Her body was never found. He was seven years old when he did that. Mm. And seven counts of arsons. <laughs> mm. Not to forget that he really liked seeing the fireman mm. work. Any other thoughts? I think with the, you know, you know in hindsight, being 2020, in 2020, um, he showed all the classic hallmarks that we now know and can associate with serial killers. And from someone at such a young age to be displaying them and to have developed a habit of this type of criminal activity is something that thankfully the world doesn't see too often and hasn't seen since. Uh, well, hadn't seen before and hadn't seen since. Um, hopefully now someone, uh, hopefully now, uh, people can be, uh, diagnosed and treated. Did I mention everything about he never had a chance of, yeah, of getting any true Rehabilitation. Rehabilitation. Thank you so much because um, what actually drove his father to 
take him to the police when he was younger or any in all those different occasions that he was found like being extremely violent towards children's like he would be found and he would take him to the police because you know that's where people are taking when they are doing something that society doesn't think that it's right for the good or wrong and um that there was really no not such thing as a mental health structure like i mean <laughs> Again, it's easy for us to sit here and make an armchair diagnosis. Yeah. But having the bank of history that we do about Kajitano, um I think it's quite possible that he may have, uh, yeah, indeed had um, antisocial personality disorder. I don't like when they... They use the word monstrous for any human being. Like, I am personally against this. So, even though I feel that this case is fascinating, um, I really get the feeling that Cazetano had um, an impulse and really enjoy using violence against other human beings and probably maybe enjoy the act of killing. I don't believe that it's right or that he deserved to be labeled as a monster by society. No, I think he had, unfortunately, all of the contributing factors that under the circumstances and you know the, the grinding pressure of living in abject poverty... Uh, led to this particular individual and uh, led to the unfortunate deaths of several children. Thanks for listening. We are Eugenia and Chris, and this is A History of Evil Men. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, you can find us on social media. Our Instagram is A History of Evil Men. That's all in one word, so just search for that. Our Facebook is A History of Evil Men, a true crime podcast. And if you'd like to email us, our address is a history of evil men at gmail.com. No spaces in that, that's all one word. And if you'd like to support us, our Patreon is A History of Evil Men. Same as before, all one word. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>